your strategy might be perfect the day you presented it, but as you go to implement it, the world changes. Customers need change, customers evolve, competitors react, and things change, and your strategy needs to adapt. Why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail? How do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries? In the age of mobile, these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth. Hello! We are happy to have our next guest, Surendra Bashani, who is currently the Senior Director of Product Management at Best Buy. Before that, Surendra spent eight years as a product leader at Amazon. Welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you, Mara. I'm excited to be here as well. And thank you for having me on the show. Maybe let's start with your background. You work for Best Buy. You are the director of product management. Tell us a bit about what that role entails. How does your day-to-day look like? Sure. So right now, a lot of my focus is on a new program that we launched called uh, Total Tech, which is a loyalty program, essentially. A lot of my day-to-day has been kind of really, my immediate focus has been to kind of continue iterating on that program. We launched something in October, continue improving that experience, kind of look at what our customers are telling us about that program, also look at how customers are behaving, how they're interacting with some of our benefits and generally the experience, and continue improving their experience around that. And then also think about uh, how we can continue scaling that program, how we can continue driving engagement with our customers, and then also you know, over the long term, how we will continue to retain customers. As part of that, day to day is a lot of, you know, meetings trying to understand some of our customer behavior. This is also kind of budget season, and our fiscal year starts in Feb. So this is also the time when we uh, get together to, you know, talk about budgets and you know what bets do we want to double down on next year, align on some of our goals and priorities, iterate on our strategies and align around that and share that, but then also align across the org on some of the things we're doing. The Total Tech Initiative, for example, as you can imagine, cuts across a wide portion of the org. You know, For example, on the tech side, we've integrated across 200 different systems. And then, of course, that's beyond tech as well as you know, humans evolved, as you know, our customer care teams, our store associates. So there's a lot that goes in that, of course, requires us to also kind of coordinate pretty much across the enterprise. So this is kind of, you know, that time of the year as well. So a lot of it is, you know, work with my team. I have an incredible team of product managers, engineers, QA, data scientists. I have some incredible partners in, you know, our customer office and our technology teams. So, you know, continue working with them to make sure that we're building the right things and creating long-term value for our customers and our associates as well. And how do you measure, you know, like how do you define, first, how do you define success for your programs? And then how do you measure it? What are some KPIs you look at every day? Yeah, so there's, that's a two-part question. There is a long, so I'll focus on, again, total tech, right? There are two things, right? One is what is the long-term success look like and how are we going to measure that? And then given what our focus is, you know, this, let's say, coming quarter, what are the things we're going to optimize around? And how do we know that we were successful, right? So the immediate focus in the short term, you know, is to continue scaling the program. Like I said, that it is a new program. So, you know, continue scaling that program. So part of that is getting more adoption of our program. Some of it is creating more awareness, which is an input to getting adoption 
And then also things around engagement, you know, frequency of visits, frequency of purchases, our customers finding the value. The other thing we want to make sure is people not just opt into the program, but are also utilizing the benefits and they're actually getting value out of this as well. So success metrics are everything from adoption, you know, to increase in engagement, essentially. And then, of course, we do care about both customer feedback as measured by, you know, CSAT surveys, customer satisfaction surveys and NPS. And then we also care about store associates feedback and experiences as well as they're trying to help customers either who are existing Total Tech members or as they're trying to help customers who could be, you know, good candidates for Total Tech. So it seems like this is a really cool initiative and you're a great product leader. I think one of the things I like asking on this podcast is really understanding people's journeys to their current role. You were at Amazon before, but how did you start? How did you get into product? And then tell us a bit about your journey that leads to your role today. Sure. I think product for me was accidental, but kind of going back, I did my undergrad in accounting, actually. And my first job was as an engineer, you know, so an accountant went on to become a software engineer, essentially. I I was really interested in technology and I learned things on my own and I really enjoyed that. I grew up actually, so my family had their own businesses. My father was an entrepreneur as well. He was an engineer turned entrepreneur. He had his own manufacturing companies. Growing up, I spent a lot of my time, you know, my holidays and even, you know, non-holiday time on the shop floor of his manufacturing companies and also interned with some of his friends and suppliers and customers as well, and then went on to do accounting. My dad thought that I would kind of join the family business, but I enjoyed that. But, you know, I enjoyed technology more, at least from a software perspective, you know, not that manufacturing, not technology. So I started, you know, self-taught, started off as a uh, software engineer. A lot of the work that I did in those early years was not just building products for customers, but also kind of working with them to figure out what the product would be. I did a bunch of consulting in the late 90s with a lot of dot-com startups in Boston and other places where I started off as an engineer or as an engineer, you know, kind of helping solve a problem, but really trying to figure out what should be built beyond just the architecture, but also kind of talking about what would scale and what would customers want. So it was kind of the early introduction to product, if you may. And then I went on to doing a lot of B2B kind of work as well, building multi-tier distributed applications for insurance companies and utility companies and banks. And then I went to grad school. Right after grad school, I did a little bit of corporate strategy slash strategy consulting, primarily focused on growth and go-to-market strategies. And I was transitioning jobs. I had a couple of offers and I was looking at going into one of the, you know, I had offers from one of the, you know, two of the strategy consulting firms and I was uh, choosing between the two and also choosing which office I wanted to be at. And I was looking at actually going back to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, I used to live in New Zealand before I came here for grad school when Amazon came calling and it was different from what I was doing and it wasn't something that I had planned. But I felt, and this was in the you know late 2000s, I felt this was this would be interesting company on the West Coast. Amazon was doing a lot of <laughs> interesting things, though. This was also kind of the pre-Alexa, pre-Prime, pre-AWS. You know, a lot of the products that you're familiar with today didn't exist back then, right? I didn't think it was going to be for the long term. I thought I'd spend maybe two years there and move there. And product kind of happened 
you know, like I said, it wasn't a planned move. It just kind of happened. And then I found that I actually enjoyed that a lot more than doing some of the consulting work that I'd done. As a consultant, it was a great experience. I had some incredible managers that I learned from a lot. And again, you learn a lot as a consultant, right? Doing strategy and thinking about where to bet the next billion dollars or the next 10 billion dollars for the company. But here I felt I was more than an advisor. I enjoyed kind of owning things, making decisions, you know, building things, watching the impact of that on customers and, you know, growing that. As a consultant, you never got that right. You, you know, did the analysis, built the strategy, reviewed it with the business owner, and then they got to go implement uh, the strategy. And I feel that a lot of the learnings happen when you're actually implementing the strategy. Your strategy might be perfect. A lot of the things that I worked on were long range strategies, right? You know, growth strategies over the next five to 10 years. You know, what company should we acquire? How should we be competitive in China, for example? Your strategy might be perfect the day you presented it, but as you go to implement it, the world changes. Customers need change. Customers, you know, evolve. Competitors react and things change and your strategy needs to adapt. And you're not there for kind of the implementation of that. And again, like I said, you don't get to kind of build it and see that grow. And I really enjoyed that aspect of product management. And I was lucky to be at a company like Amazon, which gives you a lot of ownership and a lot of opportunity to make decisions. Even at junior levels, you have the freedom to own things, make decisions. You don't have to uh, get approval for every little thing. And you get to work on big, interesting things. And if you get bored with something, it's a big company, you can move around internally. Amazon makes it very easy. And I was lucky to get the opportunity to work on some incredible products and have some incredible experiences there. And I kind of stuck with product management. I'd say product management really loosely defines what I did, but it was everything from marketing to operations to ultimately building uh, products, building businesses, everything from figuring out product market fit to scaling something to getting revenue and monetizing it. And again, I enjoy that part where you get to wear multiple hats and are essentially operating as a general manager. And that has been a lot of fun these, uh, you know, last decade or so. That's awesome. You talk a lot about like growth and wearing multiple hats. I think this podcast is about growth. Where do you think growth fits best in your organization? Should it be driven more by the product? Should it be driven by marketing? Is it somewhere in between? What are your like general thoughts and how are how is it today on the projects that you're leading? I don't so I'll say two things, right? Hey, this is my perspective, but I don't think there isn't one size that fits all. I think it really depends on the company, depends on the product, where in the life cycle it is, you know. Also depends on what is the problem that you're, you know, trying to solve for. Is it an awareness problem where you think there is going to be a marketing department that's really going to be spending time, you know, trying to get that awareness? My personal, you know, the way I think about it is I think it's everyone's problem. You know, if growth is important, it needs to be everyone's job. And then depending on what are all the other problems that you're focusing on, you know, you could choose how much to invest there or how much to prioritize. And then the way I think about growth, I think of those as two things. And so I created a growth team at, for the app team at Best Buy. And, you know, generally what I tell them, and this is how I think about it, is there's ultimately two parts to growth. One is, of course, you know, marketing, which is throwing money at the problem, getting awareness. And that's really important. But then as you think about it from the product side, 
where I find, I think, the biggest value or, you know, where I think I want product managers to really focus on is really creating value. Like, what is the value that you're trying to create in the products that you're building? And that will get the customer to say, there is an app for that. I have a problem and there is an app for that. And generally, the brief that I gave to the product team, the growth team within the product, embedded within the product team that I created, was 85% of your job is to create customer value, and, you know, find opportunities to solve customer problems uh, and create value for customers. And this is not about throwing money at the problem, but, you know, really creating value. And then the remaining 15% of it is, yes, throwing money at the problem. This is once you have that value proposition, you know, bringing it to customers, creating awareness. And then, you know, hopefully once you've done that, the customer is like, yeah, that makes sense. This is 10x better than, you know, something else or have a problem that can be solved, you know, somewhere else or in other ways. Uh, and, you know, hopefully it just kind of helps drive the product or the metrics that you're trying to drive. And, you know, talking about growth and driving value, you've kind of like, you were kind of at Amazon while the rise of mobile happened. And now your Best Buy and the app is part of, you just mentioned, you're part of what you own. How important do you think is mobile to consumer brands today? You know, when you think about like the percentage of the time you allocate to mobile versus web versus other digital, how do you think about mobile? Yeah, I think mobile is incredibly important. I think if you think about it from two dimensions, one is, of course, the amount of time you spend on it. I mean, yeah, I don't know the, you know, the exact metrics today, but it was uh, second behind TV and that might have flipped, but or might be close to depending on which markets you're looking at. But, you know, generally the time you spend on it. But then the second thing is uh, behavior, right? I mean, if you look at behavior, people's phones are stuck to their palms they'll take it with them everywhere you know they'll take it to them to the toilet you can't live without it and it travels with you unlike a television or another device and there are so many more things you can do with it than you can with the second screen or the thing that you spend the second most amount of time with which is your television and i think mobile is incredibly useful for not just a lot of industries, a lot of use cases, and you know, both to you know customers and then of course to companies who are trying to reach those customers. And then if you look at emerging markets, even more so, you know, like like but in China or India, right? I mean, it's just, yeah, mobile is everything. Yeah, I mean, people don't have computers, and you know, they just have a phone. People may not have, you know, people may not have a TV, and they might have a phone in you know some of the rural areas. I mean, I watch more TV on my phone, even though I have a TV, because sometimes I just, my TV is in the, in the living room. So I go to the bedroom and I feel like a teenager watching shows on my phone all day long. I'll be watching TV and I'll have an iPad and watch something else and I'll have my phone. You know, sometimes my wife doesn't want to watch uh, football. Like next level. <laughs> that is, yeah. My wife wants to watch a movie and she doesn't want us to be sitting watching football. So we'll be watching a movie, but I'll have... Uh, my iPad. Did you have football, football on your phone? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, kind of multitasking and, you know, have multiple screens. So, yeah, you know, and, and that's pretty, actually, that's a pretty normal use case. Maybe not watching two pieces of content simultaneously, but you're checking social media while you're watching, you know, your TV or you're doing something else on your phone, checking your emails while you're watching news on the TV. So I think that's pretty normal. And that's normal everywhere, you know, at work, you know, and you're, you're in a meeting and you're checking again your uh, Slack messages on your phone. 
totally. Or shopping. Sometimes I yeah, shop where there's TV in the background. Yeah. So, you know, I think people learn a lot from stories and you've had an awesome career. Tell us a story of a product or feature that you brought to life that you're, you know, that sticks out, that you're proud of, that you think brought a lot of value. How did that product or feature came to be? What was the impact that it drove? Tell us a story. I'll use um, Best Buy example. I'm kind of thinking there's a couple of interesting stories. So one of the things we did at Best Buy, we were thinking about, so normally as we're thinking about product, you want to start with the customer and think about a customer problem you can solve. Or you could think about, you know, technology as, you know, where is the technology going and how can it improve something, some existing thing dramatically, right? But often you kind of start with the customer. In this particular instance, we kind of started with the technology where we said, you know, we should look at AR, AR, VR. And is there something we can do? Is there... Uh, an intersection of, you know, e-commerce and AR or, you know, mobile. Is there something we can do? So we started with technology there, but we kind of decided that whatever we do, it's not going to be gimmicky. It's not going to be, you know, look at this cool, shiny thing and it's cool and shiny and it's, you know, a toy essentially, but doesn't really create customer value. So we, you know, definitely emphasize that, Whatever we do has to create value. It's not doing AR for the sake of AR, but let's really find a problem to solve. So we were kind of looking at what are the things we could do there that were meaningful beyond just creating something. And as part of that, you know, I had a big team. That was just one area that I was focusing on. I kind of, you know, managed all e-commerce on mobile on the mobile app and, you know, talked to a lot of people, our merchants, and, you know, was exposed to a lot of different things, and we were solving for a lot of problems. One of the problems that emerged as talking to, you know, people were that our return rates were pretty high. As we kind of peeled that onion a little bit, looking at uh, what products or where were, you know, kind of prioritized that by where is the biggest pain, we found that we got a lot of TVs that were returned, and that created a lot of problem, you know, not just for the company. I mean, return TV is pretty expensive in the sense that when we sell them as open box, you, you know, lose a lot of money, you know. Uh, but think about it from the customer perspective as well. It creates a huge amount of problem. Like a big screen TV often doesn't fit in your car as well. You know, sometimes people will, you know, rent a vehicle to show up, even if it fit, bring it home, unbox it, have to rebox it and bring it back. It's a huge pain, right? And so if you look at it from the customer perspective, it's a huge pain. And this was happening at significant volumes as well. And as we dig into that, we found a you know, big reason for those returns where people were buying the wrong size TVs. You know, Either they bought a TV that was too big uh, and that didn't fit in the space that they had planned, or they bought TVs that were a little smaller than they would have liked. You know, typically people are buying TVs after five years and technology has evolved and the bezels have gotten thinner and they could have gotten a bigger TV. And people are returning those for uh, bigger TVs. And we said, hey, this is a perfect use case for uh, AR where we can build an experience on the product detail page of a, you know, a television product detail page where customers could place a virtual TV either on the wall, you know, wall mounted or put it on a, uh, table and move it around and cycle through different sizes to see what fits. And that will then help with the return problem. And then that'll help them pick the right TV. So we build that. We initially build that as 
we were experimental with it. We built a low fidelity version of it to kind of validate our hypotheses. We had a number of hypotheses. There were some interesting learnings from it. Some of our hypotheses didn't uh, work out the way we thought they would. But overall, it was a successful feature. We saw customers who did engage with that, you know, were having better outcomes. And, you know, so eventually we kind of iterated on that, built it, launched it to customers, and it's doing pretty well. So that was kind of, you know, a good intersection of e-commerce, mobile, creating value, but also kind of using as technology is evolving, using that to solve, uh, you know, customer problems. Uh, so that was kind of a fun project. I love it. It's such a good story. Impact on customers, impact on like, you know, the bottom line of the business. I love it. What are your thoughts around AR and VR, the future of it? How much time should brands be exploring this? I just bought my first Oculus and I can't, I, I play with it every day. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it it is certainly, I think this is a good time for you know, companies to start experimenting with it. I think generally, if you see trends in mobile, and there are two major, you know, things that will kind of drive adoption of AR and VR, well, three. One is hardware is getting more powerful, right? With each iteration, your phones are getting faster and more powerful. And then, you know, the AI capabilities on the phone as well, you know, not just kind of raw processing power, but the graph, you know, graphics processors, the ability to, you know, run machine learned algorithms is getting better. The second is, you know, data is going to get faster as adoption of 5G and all of that is just going to kind of keep improving. And I think there is, I think the third thing I mentioned is there is, you know, with with Facebook and others kind of, you know, pushing on the metaverse and as kind of the interest, you know, not just the hype, you know, certainly the hype, but also kind of the interest. And as companies push those in certain areas like gaming, for sure, I think customers will become more aware of that and will want to essentially have higher fidelity experiences across all of the different things that they're doing. You know, everything from watching content, wanting it to be more immersive to having problems to solve with shopping that can be, you know, maybe like, is the shoe fitting me? But there might be a lot of other use cases as well. I think it will certainly, adoption will certainly grow. In some industries, it's certainly easier to kind of understand the use cases of the problems or the value to create in others. You're going to have to think about it a little bit deeper around, are we doing AR for the sake of AR because it's a trend or is there real value that can be created or real problems that can be solved by, for us to, you know, by us kind of using AR in, you know, our particular niche, whatever that might be. So I think it, it is time where brands should start experimenting with it. Getting it right, building a higher fidelity experience certainly takes time. And then the other thing is, like I said, the use cases sometimes are not always that obvious. And even though sometimes they are obvious, you'll find that you'll learn surprising new things that might help you kind of go in a different direction. So I think it's certainly the time to start experimenting and start building things, not in a crazy way, like I said, just for the sake of it, but really be strategic about what uh, you're building and why. Well, the example you gave, I think it was a really good one for AR and I love it. So usually like we will end with a few quick questions, but before we go into that, I like to always ask for advice. And I think, you know, you've had a great career in product and I think it's actually hard. Product is a hard industry or a hard job 
for people to get into. I, I was a man- product manager for a while and there is no school for it. You know, I was also a management consultant. That's how I got into product. But I, people sometimes wonder, I want to become a product manager. And it's unlike marketing or engineering, there is no like exact training. And I think that's changing. I saw you actually taught at product school, but I'd love your advice for others who are trying to become product managers and then actually stepping from a product manager to a product leader, which I know there's like this whole talk about the gap of like from being an actual PM to a a leader in in product. Yeah. So the question is how people who are thinking about getting into product management, how should they, you know, what is the track? How should they think about it? Yeah. Yeah. And then the follow on would be if you're already a product manager and you want to be a leader, what advice you have for those people? So I guess it's a two part question. Yeah. So the first part, getting into product managers, I think there is, the conventional path, which is kind of easier, you know, Amazon, for example, hires a ton of product managers for business schools. And so that's kind of the regular track. I guess the question, I'll kind of answer the question for the more non-traditional candidates who are doing something else and want to break into product management or have a different kind of education. Maybe they're not an engineer and maybe they're an arts major and want to get into product management, right? I'll say two things. One is there is a recognition within industry today that product managers don't need to have a, a certain kind of background you don't need to have an MBA or business degree or an engineering degree. I think there's increasingly more companies that are open to, and this is true, not just for product management, but for a number of different roles as well, but companies are generally open to taking people with, you know, non-traditional backgrounds. I think in terms of it's, you know, beyond that, and, and companies certainly are hurting to hire. It's hard to hire product managers. Well, let me say it differently. It's hard. It's easy to find a lot of people who want uh, to be product managers. You get a lot of you know people, but it's hard to get the right kind of people. I'd say two things. Right, there are certainly you know get help. You know, talk to people in the industry. You know, have people reaching out to me and use them to help navigate navigate your way into a company. The other is often it's easier sometimes, depending on your background, to join a company and then switch roles. If you have no product background, you know, let's say you've been working as an accountant. If you applied as a product manager to a company, it might be a little bit harder. But if you joined a company as, you know, in that current role, there are many companies who are open to people switching roles. And the best way you can do that, certainly at Amazon as well, you can do that. You know, I've had colleagues at Amazon who were exactly that, was uh, a financial analyst and moved into product management. I've had a lot of people with, you know, non-traditional background kind of doing a certain role, moving into product management. The second thing is product management is often an overloaded term. You know, there are many companies where your title might be something else, but the work you're doing is essentially product. So look for opportunities when you're in these companies to uh, kind of get some of that experience, irrespective of what your title is, and then kind of get that experience. And this a might make it easier, but I think it's more important. More important than that is to get you an understanding of what is expected in that role, so that you know that is something you really want to do, and then b so that you know you're more successful as you make that uh, you know transition and get into that role. But I'd say ultimately those two. And of course, the other one is there are things like product schools and others where you can go do a short course. I'd say that's not all, you know, that certainly helps. But 
when you're recruiting, you know, somebody, you know, who's just in a four-week product school is good. But if you have a huge number of, huge number of other resumes with people who got five years of, you know, product management experience, you might look at that. But we have hired, I have hired from product school. Often those are people, it's not just about the product school, but it is people who are curious, who have a growth mindset, who are open to learning. We've uh, talked to people from product school where, they didn't have any of the skills they needed them to we needed them to have as a product manager, but they just had the right attitude and really liked them and they had that growth mindset. They were, you know, super curious intellectually. And we said this person is great and we we're willing to invest in those. And increasingly, that's also the approach a lot of companies are taking, right? It is hard to hire product managers. Everyone wants seasoned product managers, product leaders, as you said, and I'll pivot to that question in a bit, but it's hard to get that. We are certainly spending a lot of time, you know, kind of switching to getting people more, you know, getting more junior people and investing in them and training them to kind of be good product managers. So, you know, all of that, but ultimately also, like I said, certainly reach out, reach out to people in the industry, a referral here or there, a mentor here or there certainly helps kind of break through some of the, you know, barriers which exist when somebody looks at a resume and says that, but he doesn't have that kind of, he or she doesn't have that background. The second part of the question about being a product leader, there's two parts to that. One is kind of becoming a really strong product person where you're really elevating the game. And then the second part of that is kind of a leadership role within product. You know, what are kind of some of the changes? I think I think the big switch that you make as you get into a leadership role is more focus on kind of setting the vision and strategy and uh, more focus on working on cross-functional alignment across the organization at senior levels. You know, the hard problem at that level is not, is different. It's about creating that org alignment uh, than really kind of the customer problem or the technical problem of that particular thing. The earlier one, which is kind of, you started off as a product manager and you've got some product experience. How do you get to the next level where you become that person who's kind of raising the bar or, you know, I'd say two things. One is, again, always be learning. There is no one model of product management. There are different products. There are B2B products. There are B2C products. There are early stage products, you know, zero to one X that are exploding. There are products that are growing at three or 4%, all kinds of different situations. I think always be learning. And then within that, I think it's important to learn how to think more than any particular skills, you know, problem-solving skills are really important. Critical thinking, analytical, you know, like understanding data, using data, interpreting data really well. Some of those skills. And it's not about using a specific tool, but really getting competent with that. Having, you know, getting good at building strategy and then getting really good at creating product cultures, you know, that prioritize customers that are optimizing for the long term rather than, you know, optimizing for the short term or becoming a feature factory, like really understanding the different cultures and the pros and cons and learning how to navigate that so that you can, again, create value for the customers. There's a lot of things that come in your way in creating value for customers. Some of it are standard product problems. Some of them are cultural problems. Some of those are, you know, organizational problems. Some of them are people problems. Kind of understanding all of that and being able to navigate that will help you work on bigger problems and that can have a bigger impact. So 
I think fundamentally just keep learning, keep reading, always be open. I'm always learning, you know, even now. I love that. Any books or anything recent that you used to learn that you recommend? Yeah. I soak up whatever I can. I everything from psychology to finance to, you know, podcasts and, you know, the stretch trickery, you know, the the blogs to I read pretty wide swath of things. I don't think there was any particular thing. I think if you're intellectually curious about a lot of things, that helps. And that's the other thing. I think a lot of invention happens when you apply something from one domain to another to you know, create something new. And there's, there's tons of examples of that across everything from art to architecture to, you know, product management, where two things have been combined and something gets created. So I think it doesn't really matter as much, whatever you enjoy. I think the key thing is, if you force yourself to do something that you're not really enjoying or reading something that you're really not enjoying, it won't work. Like if you, if you really don't enjoy, I don't know, doing Coursera courses on machine learning, you don't have to do it. You know, you don't have to like find what interests you. Could be blockchain, could be just consumer psychology, could be whatever it is. I think, you know, the main thing is if you have that intellectual curiosity and you have that growth mindset and you like learning, you'll find your path. Cool. That's great advice. So we're going to end with three fun questions to get the audience to know you better. They're slightly random and I hope you'll enjoy them. Okay. Question number one. If you had to delete all the apps on your phone and only keep one, what would you keep? It would be my Audible app. I, you know, yeah, I do a lot of reading. And then I find that I can do a lot more reading if I, you know, with books that are read to me rather than me physically reading because I can do that while, you know, I'm running. I can do that while I'm moving around the house or even when I go to bed, I turn it on and listen to stuff and fall asleep while it's running. So I think that's, I can't imagine how I would fill my time without that. You are the first person who said Audible, and that would be my answer. And I think we've had over 65 podcasts. So I found the person who has the same answer as me on this one. So love it. If you had an app to talk to one animal or one type of animal, what animal would you pick? I'd like to cheat there too. I can pick two, but you know, the directly answering your question would be cats. We have a cat and I'm a crazy cat person. We put him in you know, tiny uh, pram and we walk him around the neighborhood while people will think that we are walking our baby and then they look around, it's a cat and they'll do a double take and give us, you know, funny looks like, you know, weirdos. And we dote on him and he's very affectionate and we we were always, a lot of my wife and our conversations are like, what does he want? What is he thinking? You know, so if you can kind of understand that better, that would be good. But the other one is kind of Babelfish, you know, like there were a way to automatically and instantly translate everything written, spoken. That would be awesome. You know, kind of the universal translator or, you know, Babelfish, which will help you understand everyone and everywhere. Yeah, that would be awesome. That would bring the world closer together and federate knowledge in a better way. But yeah. Maybe one day we'll get there. It's possible. <laughs> I think I have faith. <laughs> in our ability as a human race technology is getting there so technology is getting so good that we might like at some point understand what animals are thinking based on their body language and, you know we'll see and then what's the most unlikely app on your phone that maybe your uh, people close to you would be surprised close to me would be surprised i don't have too many crazy uh, i have this app called deminder which tells you the best time for you to get vitamin D. 
So this was something I didn't oh, wow. know. Yeah, this is something I didn't know. That's cool. Before I got the app, it's like being in sunlight is not enough to be to get vitamin D. It needs to be at a, the sun needs to be at a greater than a certain angle. I forget what it is. And even if it's bright and sunny, for example, in Seattle, without a cloud in the sky, you won't be getting any vitamin D somewhere between October and Feb. So it's not just sunlight, it's just angle and measures the angle. It tells you your next vitamin D opportunity is in, you know, 90 days, for example, in the winter. And then it measures how much vitamin D you're getting if you kind of you say that I'm sitting in sunlight and it does some cool, interesting things. So, yeah, you know, I find I think it's very different from some of the other apps. And it's kind of interesting in how it measures. Cool. I want to. I want to get it. Yeah, it, you ha- you can put in your skin tone because you know, depending on certain factors, you might be absorbing more or less. Uh, you know, so it, it's pretty interesting, and it kind of measures how much vitamin D you've gotten and all of that kind of stuff. It tell asks whether you're wearing shorts or not because more of your body is exposed and all that kind of stuff. So, me living in Seattle, you know, where it's a little bit cloudy and you don't get as much sun in the winter, it was uh, super interesting and kind of a fun app for me. Love it. Well, Phil, I learned a lot, Surendra, today. Great advice, some really great stories. I uh, really appreciate the time, and it was really great having you as a guest. Thank you, Mara. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing. Keep growing.